I'm Catherine Arndt, the Chief of the VLGA Connect Studio. Welcome to today's episode, brought to you by the VLGA, your councillor support network and the national broadcaster on all things local government. Well, hello everyone and welcome once again to TGU. It's the weekly flagship program from VLGA Connect where we talk about all the things that are happening in and around the local government sector. Of course, it'd be boring if I just sat here and spoke about it all by myself. So I've got some friends to chat with. Uh, Tony Rannick from Hunt and Hunt Lawyers, who also sponsored the program, is with us again. Hi, Tony. G'day, Chris. I'd still tune in to watch it, Chris. Oh, would you? <laughs> I think it'd be it'd be that'd be really jumping the shark uh, sitting here <laughs> on YouTube talking to myself. And Julie Reed is with us as well from Julie A. Reed and Associates. Hello, Julie. Good morning, Chris. Good morning, Tony. And what a bumper week this has been. It sure has. There's been a lot happening, hasn't there? Um, So I hope you've both had a good week. I hope you're all well rested and uh, full of energy to get through this big, long list of things, which I wanted to start with. um, uh, And we'll come to Canberra in a moment, because, of course, the National General Assembly's been on. But I did want to start with the King's Birthday Honours list, which came out on Monday. Uh, I did a count of the, the, the main list when it first came out and found no less than 35 references to local government. There were one or two more hiding away there. Uh, so local government very well represented and quite a few from Victoria. Julie, a few people I'm sure that uh, you've crossed paths with uh, in your local government career as well. Yes, Chris, and look, I was really pleased to see uh, some of the Victorian councils be nominated on that list. Um, In particular, I was interested in Councillor Kleinert um, from Manningham City Council. She's got an amazing background. Um, She led the charge in establishing a youth mental health outreach service for Manningham um, with Headspace in Hawthorne. Mm. And I just think that that's the type of stuff that really makes a difference in local communities. And we know how much our, our youth are struggling, particularly post-COVID. Um, she's she's an amazing uh, ambassador for that space. So um, I know that she's been involved um, with Bully Zero and uh, she's, she's a, a real great advocate, I think, and a champion for Manningham. So uh, just wanted a a shout out for her um, and think it's fantastic that we've got councillors that are being recognised and also staff members as well. So Yes, we'll come to the staff member in just a moment, but while we're on councillors, I'm sure you've crossed paths with a few of these uh, as well, uh, Tony. Particularly pleased to see Malcolm Hole uh, Honoured, who passed away a couple of years ago, of course, now was in office at the time at uh, Wellingtonshire. And I know the people down in Wellingtonshire are, are quite chuffed that uh, he's been recognised posthumously this way. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, I'm not surprised that there are so many um, local government identities recognised in this way. Of course, there's so many people involved in local government who are just, you know, really great at the grassroots of community and uh, really, you know, really doing amazing things. So um, it's appropriate that we see them recognised in the honours list. Um, I went through looking for our names, Chris and Julie, didn't didn't find them in there, but uh, maybe <laughs> next why, year. But uh, no, some well-deserving people um, in that list, as you say, some councillors and, and some council officers as yes. well. So uh, just a couple to mention. We won't go through the whole list uh, from a Victorian perspective. Uh, Lord Mayor Sally Cap, uh, of mm. course, with an AO. Uh, Robert Gersh, who's a councillor at Hindmarsh and a former mayor. Heather Marcus, who I crossed paths with a few times uh, in the West, former mayor at Wyndham, has been uh, recognised with an OAM. 
uh, Rose Hodge, councillor at Surf Coast. Uh, Julie mentioned Michelle Kleinert. Rob Steen, who's currently serving as mayor at uh, Maroondah. And uh, John Kavanagh, a former councillor and two-time mayor at the city of Moreland, as it was uh, back then. And you both mentioned the staff member. I thought this was lovely. The uh, staff member at Bass Coast Shire, Ella Angarani, I hope I'm saying that right, is a council recreation and open space planner. But she's been recognised for the work she's done to further gender equality in Australian rules football because she founded the Bass Coast Breakers Women's Football Club and she's the president and the coach. Sounds like she's the lifeblood of uh, that team. She's, I think she's the stalwart down there. Um, I checked them out, the Bass Coast Breakers, Div 2 in the Southeastern Women's League, runners-up last year to Warrigal, um, and their win-loss ratio, I think they're 7-5 or 7-6 or something so far this year, Chris and Julie. So well done to um, Ella, and, um, and, and isn't it great to see... Um, where women's football has come over the last few years in terms of the profile. And um, it's people, as I say, like like Ella in those um, communities at, at, a, at a grassroots level who are, who, are, who are really responsible for this as much as some of the peak bodies like the AFL are. And, and Chris, she's an amazing role model uh, for the women down there at Bass Coast in the community and is the leader of the future. So uh, good on good on her and great that she's got some recognition for it. I think it's also great uh, recognition that a lot of council officers, that they work in local government because they want to make a difference in their local communities. We see this so much and they're doing so much more than just their day-to-day job with their councils, which I think is something you see a lot around the local government sector. And well done to uh, to Ella for setting an example. Um, I'm just going to jump over a couple of items in the story list, guys, because while we're talking about uh, winners, the national awards for local government were announced this week in Canberra at the National General Assembly, or as in tandem with that event. And Victoria, once again, has fared really well in these uh, awards, starting with our friends out at the city of Melton. Julie? Yes, uh, won the category of productivity through infrastructure for developing the moving Melton transport prospectus. Um, I'm quite interested in having a look at that uh, that project, Chris. Um, mm. It sounds really interesting and good on Melton for coming up with something that wins a national award. So yeah. uh, fantastic piece of work and um, I'm really keen to get my hands on it. Uh, I did talk on uh, the Roundup recently about the Paddock Run podcast that or vodcast, I think it is, that's been produced out at Bullochshire. This is all related to their flood recovery mm. efforts. Well, it's been recognised with an award in the Disaster Preparedness Award. So I know Travis Fitzgibbon and the team there will be absolutely chuffed to be recognised with that award. Uh, well done to them. Any of them uh, jump out at you, Tony? No, I'm not really across them at the moment, but I did hear about that. Um, what did you call it? Vodcast? A vodcast. So vodcast? basically you're on one. You're on oh, one right now, oh, Tony. There we this go. is a vodcast. Yeah. Oh, gee, oh, I'm really with it then, aren't I? Um, but no, what a great um, thing that's that, that's occurring there with, with councils using you know different forms of media to, yeah. to get out to the community and tell a story. Absolutely. Uh, Mount Alexander Shire won the award for Indigenous recognition. Glenn Ira won the award for addressing violence against women and their children. That's for an intervention service for vulnerable mothers called Glen Ira Mums. Uh, there were some, obviously, other winners from other states. I'll talk about those on uh, the Local Government News Roundup, but there's a story from the Mandarin, which nicely summarises all those winners. So 
well done to uh, all of those people representing local government so well with those uh, projects uh, this year. Uh, back to uh, to home and more serious news. Uh, interesting story this week, Tony, in the Herald Sun about a, mm. a a complaint that we believe has been lodged with the local government inspectorate about uh, well, it's about lobbying and potential conflicts of interest at the city of Stonington. I've got a bit of a view about this, but I'd like to get yours first, Tony. Yeah, interesting one. The but the background being um, a, a study that I think was commenced in about two thousand nineteen at Stonington in relation to you know reviewing. Um, heritage controls in suburbs like Turak, Armidale, Kuyong. The outcome of that study was a recommendation that about 130 particular properties be included within um, a heritage overlay. Um, and that um, resulted in um, one of the la affected landowners, um, turns out they have a development background, own a property in Armidale called um, Tudor Lodge sounds pretty nice. It's a double story, um, 1930s, um, you know, pretty posh um, mm. place. Um, but um, that that landowner um, engaged professional lobbyists who um, lobbied councillors in relation to having that property removed from the list for inclusion in the heritage overlay. And there was an unsuccessful amendment motion brought to take that property out of the list. Um, the motion um, failed on the casting vote of the mayor, I believe. And what we've learned now from um, report, subsequent this media report is there's apparently a complaint's been lodged with the local government inspectorate alleging misuse of position um, by councillors in, in, in terms of supporting that um, proposed amendment to remove Tudor Lodge from the list. Um, sounds strange, a bit strange to me. Section 123 of the Local Government Act deals with misuse of position and it's, it, it involves, you know, a councillor, you know, improperly using their position yeah. to advantage themselves or another person, um, merely sort of responding positively to some lob lobbying, being persuaded by a view out there, um, even if it's put professionally to them, um, in itself to me wouldn't necessarily amount to misuse of position, but perhaps mm. there's something else in the detail we're not aware of. Um, normally you'd need to establish some, you know, inappropriate use of confidential information, information that had come to the council or only through their position being improperly used. So not yeah. really sure whether this is a storm in a teacup or there's more to it than was reported. My, my view entirely, Tony, I wondered what more there could be to this because on the face of it, isn't it the councillor's job to listen to all of the various views that are presented and to keep an open mind, uh, not have a predetermined view, and then reach reach a position based on all the information available to them. It just so happens that these, I think, two councillors uh, reached the view that accorded with uh, the person that had been lobbying. Uh, big deal. Well, I think more than that, in fact, yeah. um, you yeah. know, it, it, given that it, it failed on a casting vote. But, exactly. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, just because the, um, in this case, the, the, the lobbying was coming from someone professionally engaged. Um, it wouldn't seem it seem inequitable to me if you just refuse to listen to it on that basis. Um, yeah. 
as you say, role of council to listen to the views in the community and then make a determination. Julie, a bit of a slippery slope here, do you think, or can you see where these uh, these folks are coming from? Oh, look, I suppose I'm going to come from a different perspective um, and talk about how hard it is for councils in this heritage space. Mm. Uh, this is becoming more and more difficult as land becomes more and more precious, as people become more and more wanting to have their own control over their own land and not have controls put on them through heritage overlays, for example. These are battles that councils are having, you know, across the country and particularly in Melbourne and inner Melbourne. Um, and it's becoming very, very hard for councils to navigate through without lots of emotion and lobbying that goes on you know, with this kind of um, control. Planning is hard enough as it is for, I think, for local government to navigate through, but heritage is, you know, probably one step harder than, <laughs> than yeah. getting through, you know, normal planning procedures. So, um, you know, look, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to understand, you know, where there's justification for this complaint to the local government inspectorate. But I, I feel for the council and I'm actually thinking, wow, isn't it great that the council have had that debate, um, come to a conclusion um, and not necessarily um, sort of sort of finish the, the, the situation where they haven't been able to make a decision or um, or mm. they've been, you know, so, uh, so... Um, uh, dysfunctional in their decision making on this one because this is a this is a tough decision for councils to make when they're being lobbied. Yeah, and as you say, particularly in in the heritage space, you can understand owners of heritage properties that feel hamstrung about what they can or or can't do by virtue of the fact that they have a property that has uh, heritage value. The thing that jumped out at me, uh, Tony, was the line that says. The lobbying was not illegal, but raised concerns about councillors leaving themselves open to outside influence and selectively overriding council recommendations. It misses the point that council recommendations are just that. And as frustrating as it can be for officers to have recommendations not followed at times, that's the the role of the councillor to weigh all of that up. And if necessary, if they feel appropriate, make an alternative decision. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that the tone of the article was, you know, oh, well, they listened to someone with a bit of money, you know, who could afford yeah. a professional um, lobbyist. But, you know, you'd, you'd probably expect that in an area like Armadale um, and, you know, what we're talking about, a mansion here. Um, so, uh, no, I, I I don't see anything um, to be criticised in, in terms of councillors um, listening to um, um you know the the representations I received from the community, and um, if in this case, um, you know, this was only one of a few representations, um, um, then understandably, um, that was where councillors would have would have had their attention focused. Well, um, I, I'm sure we probably won't hear anything from the inspectorate on this. Uh, I I imagine it'll just uh, go away, but uh, let's wait. Let's wait and see. As we say, there might be other factors there we're not aware of. Uh, Quick uh, classified ad uh, before we move on. Uh, this portion of the program is brought to you by the, the VEC, who are looking for election managers. And we're not being paid for this announcement, um, but I just did note this week that they have put out a call for uh, interested and appropriately qualified, I assume, people who, uh, who'd like to do. I, I think this would be a great 
a great job, actually. Uh, I'd like to do this in another life, uh, be an election manager, but it's a big commitment. It's for, well, it's four months uh, to uh, to run the election uh, program for a particular council area in the lead up to and just after the elections in October next year. So they're getting in early. But I reckon between us, we could probably come up with a list of people we reckon to do a good job with this. Tony, Julie? I've already texted someone <laughs> to say, good. you know, you're in. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, they've got to put their hand up, of course. It's probably a good reminder for some of those councils that don't have councillors that, you know, t- now's the time to be pulling out the um, councillor, council staff interaction policy from however many years ago and brushing that up a bit and sort of um, perhaps engaging with some of the staff about, you know, you might have worked with councillors before, um, you know, what's the, you know, get some role clarity in there, who's responsible for what, Um because yeah, it's a big will be a big change in the dynamic at some councils um, when yeah. councillors arrive post those twenty twenty four elections. All right. So if anyone listening to us thinks they'd like to put their hand up for one of those jobs with the VEC uh, as an election manager, uh, they can go to vec.vic.gov.au forward slash jobs to find out more. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about homelessness lately, uh, Tony and Julie, because I had a chat with Leanne Mitchell, who's a manager at Brimbank City Council and uh, has come back from a recent uh, Churchill Fellowship uh, research study, looking at how councils in other parts of the world are are tackling homelessness. Spoiler alert, uh, she didn't find a silver bullet, but you can listen to that interview on on the Roundup uh, special episode for June called Council Conversations. But um, timely, uh, a report's just come out from the, uh, just let me get their name right, I think it's the Council Two Homeless Persons, uh, which has dug into the statistics from the last census and done some comparison from the previous uh, census. And it's pretty stark in Victoria, particularly. I know it's a problem everywhere, but the southwest, uh, South Barwon region, um, 456% increase over that five-year period. It's staggering in terms of numbers of homeless persons. Just a huge issue. And I think many of us would think, you know, um, the problems in the CBD where we see people, you know, sleeping outside railway stations and such, but actually um, turns out that um, it's in the outer metropolitan suburbs. It's um, in the regional areas where, you know, you have um, people um, who are in crisis accommodation, they're sleeping in cars, they're, they're you know, couch surfing. And um, yeah, just a widespread problem. I think um, census last census night there was one hundred and twenty four and a half thousand people in mm. Victoria who were homeless. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I saw an article this week about the Commonwealth Games coming yeah. up in twenty twenty six and the opportunity that that might provide for um, in terms of the the athlete accommodation we'll be constructing. Um, I think Ballarat, the old sail yards in La Trobe Street, um, Geelong at Mount Deneed, um, Bendigo, Flora Hill, and 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 also in Morwell, there's athletes' villages paying for about seven thousand athletes, and um, there's an you know an opportunity here to maybe build you know construct those facilities, design them in a way that provides social and affordable housing into the future it seems Mm. that um those regions are really screaming out for that um sort of housing and last commonwealth games in australia was the gold coast 2018 it seems there was an opportunity missed 
there and uh, we might do some forward planning this time around. Uh, interesting one. I missed that story, uh, Tony. Uh, Julie, the reason I brought this up today is um, I'm seeing more and more stories of how councils are in a bit of a uh, sticky situation in in uh, dealing with homelessness because it's not a fundamental primary responsibility of councils, but communities expect uh, I think councils to be able to do something about it. And often it seems to be that communities are expecting councils to move the problem on, or as Leanne said to me in the interview, uh, to do something uh, about it. We've had an instance in Byron where there's been lots of complaints about a particular park area being used by homeless people. We've had, uh, I think, the city of Logan in Queensland where they've, they've moved them from one location to another and faced some criticism for that. And this one caught my eye this week out of Sunshine Coast, where four yeah. tiny homes were put up on one particular property and there's people living in them and someone complained. Uh, the council planners have looked at it and said, well, it doesn't comply, there's no permit, and they've been issued with eviction notices. And understandably, people are saying, how can you do that in the middle of a housing crisis? Councils are between a rock and a hard place sometimes, Julie. Yeah, they are. And it is interesting, this this case that you're talking about in Queensland where the Sunshine Coast had to respond to a complaint from a member of the community and now a neighbor, a neighbor from this property. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's mm. right and 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 now this this mum with children ha- has to move out of this tiny home on a property and it's got nowhere to go you know and mm. so it's again it's a very emotional issue but it's all about the planning controls it's all about whether or not they've got permission for it well they don't so they need need to get permission for it and so in the meantime they're they're having to evict this mum and her children so it is it's it's sort of a you know planners normally are very um very socially conscious and you know it would it would be very hard I think in a situation like this um to to go hard um on you know an enforcement matter when you know that it's going to impact someone in that Way and you're just going to move the problem on, as you mm. as you say. And when councils find themselves in a situation where, say, there are homeless people, you know, lying in a civic precinct, um, they all they all they end up doing is calling the police and getting them to move them on, and it just moves the problem somewhere else. Yeah. So you know, it's interesting. It's interesting. The planning system um, is so cut and dry around things like that and whether or not there needs to be some kind of review of whether there could be exemptions uh, for situations like this potentially um, how you could how you could enforce that is probably pretty hard to work out but yeah. look there's there's a housing crisis we know yeah. we know that there's a, a shortage of housing and there's a lot of housing being used for Airbnb and there's been a big big debate around the lack of housing as a result of Airbnb. Um, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, look, it's it, there's lots, there's a, a circle, a vicious circle there of planning controls, Airbnb, what do you do with these people? How do you support them as a council? It's um, really, really hard. As always, it takes, it takes time for the legislative framework to catch up with the realities on the ground, but we are seeing a lot of, uh, talking a lot of action in some places and dealing with the short stay accommodation uh, issues, and I know um, at least one councillor up there on the Sunshine Coast is calling on the officers for to some compassion uh, to to review that decision to try and find other solutions. 
difficult space to be in, Tony. Julie summed it up. I, I absolutely, um, council's got this responsible authority role, but of course, you know, needs to consider the broader needs of the community, and um, you know, it's just a broader debate that 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 we're having, and um, and you know, it seems that um, opportunities to provide social and affordable housing are front of mind um, at a state government level um, and a federal government level. Um, across Australia and, um, and um, you know, no doubt um, we're going to see at a local level um, some potentially some regulatory changes to basically smooth the way. Yeah. And I think, Chris, there's an opportunity mm. in the planning system, and a lot of councils are doing this really well, to negotiate that social and affordable housing mix with developers. Uh, some, some councils are really going hard in that space. There's some good work going on at Yarra City Council around that. So, you know, I think it's um, councils shouldn't underestimate how much they might be able to influence developers in that space when they've got big developments in front of them. All right. Good, good discussion on that point. I'm sure it won't be the last time that uh, that comes up. I'm going to jump one on your running sheet, guys, because I want to, while we're talking um, uh, legal issues, uh, get Tony's take particularly. You might recall um, a, a couple of months ago, I think now we talked about Philip Ruddock's council, Hornsby Council was taking a uh, uh, some action in the High Court to to uh, look at the way councils are charged and pay GST. I think they call it notional GST, and the idea is that uh, as councils pay those GST amounts, they're offset from future grant funding that comes from the Commonwealth. This had the potential to really shake up the way GST was treated at the local government level, but they've lost the case this week in the High Court, Tony. Yeah, yeah. Hornsby Council's lost that case. And as you say, Philip Ruddock, the mayor, um, had a few wins as um, you know a, a Howard government minister, mm. but it hasn't been successful on this one. As you say, it's about the... Um, what they call notional GST treatment. I think the example that was put forward in the case was the sale of a Holden Colorado utility mm. by council and a 3,000 odd notional GST liability, which they, you know, um, in included and remitted in their business activity statement. Um, look, tax is complicated, but my understanding of this is that councils um, either um, remit the notional GST, or as you say, there's an equivalent adjustment in the next round of um, Commonwealth funding. Mm. So, um, so the High Court decided here that because um, there wasn't a compulsion, there wasn't a, a legal uh, a piece of legislation that required council to um, remit that notional GST, that the challenge would fail. Um, because essentially the, the the arrangement was through some intergovernmental agreement that was yeah. has you know, has roots back to 1999. Um, that makes me think. Well, you know, a council's compelled to do this at all. Um, yeah. The High Court's saying they're not, but presumably there's still this funding implication if they fail to follow this um, reporting notional GST on their BAS process. But um, yeah, uh, I don't think it. Um, I, I, you know, if 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 the decision had gone another way, there might well have been sector wide implications, and um, someone will pull apart this high court decision who understands tax law better than me, but um, not a win for Hornsby uh, Shire in this one. 
As you say, the High Court found that they weren't compelled to make that payment. That I had the same thought as you. Does does that give rise to another avenue to try and uh, challenge the way this system is working from a local government point of view? Yeah, and that's I guess it's the you know, the interface between you know we're not compelled, but we signed a you know we voluntarily entered into an agreement that said if we mm. do this, there'll be this implication. If we don't do this, there'll be another implication. But yeah. Um, Look, I think it'd be back to the, um, you know, the back to the books for the um, Hornsby's um, legal advisors on this one, and um, um, we'll see whether there's a revised um, approach. Uh, it occurs to me that the cost of taking that high court action probably uh, is far and away more than the notional GST amounts that any particular council would incur in a given year. That's that's probably right. Although when we add it up across the sector, um, I'm, I guess there are other contributors to the. Um, to the action that Hornsby put its name ah, to, but you right. know. yeah, hadn't hadn't thought of that. Perhaps the cost has been shared. All right, did you want to add anything, Julia? Will we move on? Yep. Okay. Yes, let's go to. <laughs> let's go to. I thought you might say that. Let's go to an announcement that just came out this morning. As uh, I was putting the final uh, touches on the running sheet, a new one hundred million dollar energy efficiency fund has been announced uh, this week in Canberra by the Prime Minister, no less. This is for councils to uh, plug in, as they say, according to uh, press reports this morning, a uh, fund to make swimming pools, sporting grounds and courts more energy efficient. Um, so this is uh, got to be good news for the sector. Chris, can I just say, yeah, look, overall, it's good news. But, you know, the headline is local councils will be able to apply for money to make swimming pools, sporting grounds more efficient, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Some councils are struggling with the swimming pools as it is, the assets, yeah. the amount of yeah. swimming pools mm. that I have seen across Victoria that have been closed down because they can't afford to bring them up to repair or to replace them, that's the issue. Yeah. You know, um, that is the the real issue out there. Swimming pools are closing down. Council, rural councils can't afford to rebuild them. You know, that's what they need the money for if they need a swimming pool locally. Look, this is all great. Energy efficiency, we need to do this. It's all, you know, it's all heading in the right direction. But there's a fundamental shortage of funding for the replacement of assets. And uh, a really good point you raise. And when you think about it, $100 million uh, across the, the nation, 537 councils, it's not going to go very far. Nope. <laughs> okay. Nope, says Julie. We might uh, leave that one there. Thank you. Um, Salisbury councillors in South Australia have uh, finally been removed. Those two councillors we've been talking about, uh, not for their ab abhorrent, uh, absurd behaviour in recent months, but because uh, they didn't turn up to, I think it was three consecutive council meetings in a row. We talked about this being the likely outcome Tony, and uh, now there's going to be by-elections at Salisbury because there's two councillor vacancies. You're right. We we saw this coming, Chris, and um, you know the majority of councillors at Salisbury weren't convinced by whatever submissions were were put on behalf of those councillors to e explain their, you know, um, non or their absenteeism at um, I think three council meetings in a row. So yes, yeah. look look to uh, uh, two by elections in Salisbury. Unanimous decision in uh, in both of those cases uh, by that council in a confidential session that occurred on Tuesday night and the outcome was revealed on Wednesday morning. Heading further west, 
in Western Australia, where we know there's a new premier, there's a new cabinet, there's now a new local government minister, and continuing a trend that we're seeing around the country um, in in quite a few states now, the new local government minister is a former councillor, and in this case, uh, a deputy mayor from the city of Stirling. So that's got to be good news, Julie, for uh, for Western Australian council, surely. A sterling appointment, that's all Indeed. I can say. <laughs> and we should say the, the previous Minister, John Kerry, also had a, a local government background and was very, very active, particularly in leading these reforms, the tranches of, of reforms that we're seeing in Western Australia at the moment. I'm assuming David Michael, the new minister, will continue uh, with those. City of Stirling's pretty chuffed. They put out an announcement this week uh, congratulating uh, the former deputy mayor of their city, David Michael, on uh, ascending to that local government portfolio and joining the uh, the cabinet there in WA. Uh, another interstate story that caught my eye, uh, Tony, a councillor in, uh, sorry, not a councillor, a CEO in Alexandrina Council has published an open letter to vandals who've been running riot around the municipality for nearly 12 months, $100,000 in costs to deal with uh, the graffiti. And a lot of that graffiti has been particularly um, nasty about the council. And the CEO says... You need to man up and come and have an open and robust conversation with me. Is that the right approach? Yeah, well, I think it's worth a try. Um, I'm glad you called described them as vandals, not um, graffiti artists. I don't think there was any artistic <laughs> merit in um, don't think so. some of the stuff they'd be putting up. And, um, you know, good on the CEO for, you know, clearly attempting a proactive approach. The, the typical approach with graffiti is remove it as fast as you can so that, you know, the perpetrators don't get any sort of um um enjoyment of seeing that you know their, their work um yeah. posted for all to see for long periods but um you know good on the ceo at alexandrina um to um um you know making a public call for you know let's have a discussion what's going on here um if you've got issues let's not um use public buildings uh, sites that the community use as um as as a forum for you know um um putting your views on walls um come forward and let's tell us what uh, tell us what your issues are you can understand the frustration julie you've been a ceo as have of i it's got to be one of the most annoying oh. things that gets you so angry when you know you deliver these uh, wonderful uh, facilities for community uh, use and enjoyment and some idiot comes along and in this case that you know they've put expletives we won't repeat the language on playgrounds uh, at school sites etc um it, it does beg a belief and uh, gets very frustrating uh, about how to deal with it yeah it does chris and look i, I wouldn't be able to guess how much is allocated in this kind of cleanup across Victorian local government. Mm. It must be huge. And it's something that the community expect to clean up. Yes, and I agree, it needs to be cleaned up, but it is just such a waste of money. I mean, that money could be channeled into providing services to the local community. And it's just, you know, it's so frustrating. It'd be interesting to hear that CEO's strategy as, as to what they're planning to say or do if yeah. that person does decide to come in and say, okay, what do you want to talk to me about? What's the strategy around, you know, would they would they then say, okay, can we give you a space in which you can, you know, do some graffiti art um, or, you know, what what is the strategy? 
so that'd be really interesting because I think that whilst it sounds interesting that that, that offer is on the table, you'd need to have a pretty clear plan about how you are going to tackle it. Yeah, I, I think they can strategize all they like. I don't think they'll be putting it into action because I can't see them taking him up on his invitation. But well done to uh, Nigel Morris on taking that uh, stand. But I can't imagine anyone's going to come forward and say, I'm, I'm, I'm the vandal. Uh, I'd like to have the conversation that you, you've offered That's me. That's right. So yeah. how do you get to them? How do you get to them then? You've got to yeah. speak their own language. And so mm. you've got to find someone that speaks the same language that might be able to influence them in some sort of way. Yeah. So first of all, you've got to understand or find out who it is and then speak their own language. So they're not going to, you're right, they're not going to speak to a CEO. Um, another one that caught my eye this week out of Queensland, a council has seen the need, a mayor, to uh, to bring forward a notice of motion of confidence in the management team and the staff after one of the councillors made, I think it was around 20 uh, accusations at the, the previous council meeting about fabrications of minutes, lack of transparency, et cetera, comments that have led to uh, quite a bit of uh, nasty comment back at council staff, et cetera. These councillors, uh, I think rightly so, have taken a stand. Uh, have you seen this happen before, Tony? From a legal standpoint, no, I haven't. I haven't seen. We often hear of motions of no confidence. Yeah. But I haven't seen um, um, this approach. But um, was interested that this was carried unanimously. So yeah. even uh, the the apparently the councillor who'd raised these allegations and concerns has voted in support of the motion of confidence. So you know, I would think that that um, that you know um, delivers a clear message to the Southern Downs council staff and organization that you know um you do have the support of the the council group and whilst one councillor might have raised some concerns about some minutes um it seems to be um um constrained to that to that discrete issue and um there's unanimity in terms of support for the organization which is good yeah uh, and and good to see um, the action being taken because we're seeing a lot more of, um, I, I think, it, what am I trying to say? It's a bit of a give them an inch, they'll take a mile with these people in the community that are challenging the whole system, disrupting council meetings, not respecting process, etc. You've got Tamworth and uh, Scenic Rim, another Queensland council that have made pretty strong statements about this in the last week or so. Tamworth has brought in a, a new banning uh, policy to, to stop certain individuals from entering council facilities. Uh, Scenic Rim has said our zero tolerance uh, policy is being reaffirmed. Um, I know we talked about this before, but uh, Julie, right across the country and indeed overseas, we're seeing the rise of the disruptors and councils are, are needing to really draw a line in the sand. That's right, Chris. And and some councils are making really good decisions to protect their councillors and staff uh, from this bullying and harassment that's, that's mm. going on. Um, you know, concerns about this abusive behaviour is well-founded. Um, nobody should be having to put up with this. And so to take that kind of stand publicly uh, and make it really, really clear that there's zero tolerance is, is really a good way forward. Uh, what it does is it ensures good governance and it ensures good cultures within local government. But, you know, we're seeing a trend of this. If councils can hold strong on this and unite on this, I think it's going to be very powerful. Um, let's hope it sort of is a blip and it goes yeah. away. Don't know. 
It's interesting yeah. with the, the draft banning policy, which, of course, reminds us that um, a council has the power to exclude people from council property. Um, it's always had that power. And in this instance, um, with the policy that's out for consultation in Tamworth, that, you know, if, um, if council um, believes that... Um, from previous behaviour that somebody is likely to be, you know, a, a, a danger to um, members of the public, council staff, or indeed um, to the building itself, then they can be banned from attending um, the building. But how do you practically enforce that? Does it, doesn't that mean that when um, people enter the gallery for a, um, a council meeting, we have to get their ID, we have mm. to take down their name because if we're going to ban someone in the future, we need to know who they are, we need to know that they gave the correct name. So we may end up seeing, um, you know, the majority suffer through, you know, um, the sins of the minority here where you go along to a council meeting and you have to provide some ID. You know, yeah. you have to provide your details, but you know, you got to do that when you go and inspect um, a property for sale these days for auction, yeah. a residence. Um, it's probably not that much of a burden um, on the community. Yeah. Okay, uh, moving on, uh, a couple more stories just to quickly run through. Uh, just across the border in uh, New South Wales Federation Council, this is the council that was merged um, out of Corowa and I think Urana Shires back a few years back. Um, the council has held a special meeting to consider a motion to conduct a financial health check. Uh, they're saying, the mayor at least is saying, this is not about uh, wanting to de amalgamate, but this is the first step on a potential path towards that, as has been followed at Snowy Valleys, where they're considering a similar report this month, which may or may not lead to uh, a desire to demerger, but as has happened at Kutamundra Gundagai, where it is actually uh, resulting in a demerger to take effect uh, next uh, year. So, Tony and Julie, the the scorecard on the merged councils in New South Wales is starting to tip towards the unsuccessful uh, column. Yeah, 2016, I think, was yeah. when they went through that process. And there yeah. were a lot of, um, as, as, as as been part of the rationale with Federation Council, there was um, statements made by politicians and, and that at the time to say this would lead to significant efficiencies, um, mm. savings for the community, better local governance. Um, in Federation Council's case, they're now, you know, seven years later saying, well, you know, let's um, let's undertake the independent study and let's um, see what, what have been the outcomes. Has um, what was promised actually um, been delivered? And mm. that, that'll, that'll be interesting. It's it's very clear, and I did listen to the debate of the council on this this motion, that some of those councillors do not believe it has delivered efficiencies and that it has has uh, that it has worked. So, um, Julie, one to watch. Yes, it is, Chris, and I've been talking to some CEOs recently that have come from the New South Wales experience, um, and they've got experience in seeing the amalgamations and de-amalgamations. Uh, they're being called down to talk to people in Tasmania at their mm. conference down there um, to say, hey, you know, tell us what's happening in New South Wales. How how come a lot of them now are going towards de-amalgamation? Why, why didn't it work, et cetera? So the Tasmanians are seeking information mm. about yeah. all of this at the moment because, you know, they're obviously concerned about what's going on 
uh, down there at the moment. Well, well they are. There's uh, there's a host of uh, options being floated. I saw one uh, small council, Tasman Council, the mayor this week saying, uh, if this super council that's proposed goes through, we're going to lose we're going to lose our voice. There probably won't be a representative on the council. We'll be totally absorbed as a community. So those sort of concerns. Uh, are already coming out. Um, of course, no final decision's been made there yet, but uh, that's coming in the next uh, uh, month or two, couple of months, I think. Okay, a uh, couple of overseas stories. Uh, a bit of an update from New Zealand where Gore Council, we've talked about the petition of nearly 5,000 signatures to call on the CEO to resign. Uh, the council, I think, sensibly, ultimately uh, refused to accept that petition on a number of grounds, one being uh, legality, the employment of the CEO is private matter, not something that can be determined by by petition. Um, but also, apparently, a lot of the names on the petition couldn't be verified and were duplicated. Uh, Tony, interesting thing here is the motion was put to not receive the petition. Um, all of the councillors voted for that, except for the mayor. Yeah, and and I believe that the relationship between the mayor and the CEO is very strained at this particular council and. Um, but, uh, you know, is this where we're going now? You know, instead of having these, um, you know, employment performance review, contractual discussions um, in a proper professional way um, behind closed doors, is it, you know, we're going to an orchestrated community campaign where we have, you know, this public petitioning. I wouldn't have thought so. So I'm glad that um, certainly for the majority of councillors there, um, they weren't, you know, they weren't persuaded to go down this 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 public path, and mm. um, and and yeah, rightly so. I would think. I think yeah. you you mentioned some of the signatures. I think the CEO or someone with the CEO's name actually appeared several times on the petition. Is so that right? It got, <laughs> you know, you'd hardly think that the CEO was signing this petition. So there might have been a bit of shenanigans in terms of the names that I went think on so. there. Uh, I suspect it's not the last we'll hear out of Gore. That story's been going on for a few months. And as you say rightly, Tony, the relationship between the CEO and the mayor had completely broken down. There was an intermediary appointed by the council to to work between the two. And we spoke on our last episode, I think, about the origins of that petition, which had connections to one of the councillors and to the mayor's mother. Uh, but anyway, no need to go over all of that again. Here's one I'm sure that would you'll find upsetting, Julie, from your time in uh, in uh, the UK. The the good old ice cream van uh, is being banned from the middle of Greenwich Council, and some people aren't very happy um, about this. I know, poor old Mr. Whippy. Although I should say, poor old Mr. Freeze. Mr. Oh. Freeze is the one that's uh, that's in in bother. Uh, yes, the London uh, borough of Greenwich, uh, which is a very popular tourist spot where I will be heading when I head over to the UK this year, um, have banned uh, the Mr Freeze, in, well, ice cream trucks in streets, um, over 30 streets apparently. Yeah. Um, mm. So it must be a big business there. And the residents have had a guffle. They've yeah. just said, no, we're, we're just... We're just fed up with the nuisance we're fed up with the air quality uh from so it's not a gut full of ice cream <laughs> it's not a gut full of ice cream that they've had no 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 i think they've probably got some pretty fancy um ice cream shops down yeah. in greenwich um yeah. Yeah. you know how what the explosion of ice cream shops has been in melbourne i could imagine that they're just as popular in greenwich it, uh, down that's the, the um, there. 
Perhaps the vans are, um, you know, the idling of the um, ice cream vans is um, affecting the Royal Observatory clock. It is Could green. Be. Oh, yeah, Could good, be. Yes, Vibration? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I'm but a thinker. Look, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, they made this at their Cabinet meeting, you know, they made this decision and, you know, whilst it's a popular tourist destination, they're, they're basically saying that, you know, there's visual clutter, um, it's creating bottlenecks. Um, we need to get rid of them. They're suggesting ice cream vendors could still trade in the bar for up to 15 minutes on streets, which, which are not exempt. So there's a lot yeah. of streets in Greenwich. So it yeah. doesn't it doesn't kill the ice cream trade, but no. it's managing it to a point where um, it's probably a compromise to yeah. try and address the issues of the local residents. So, yeah, and take, certainly taking them away from those more highly trafficked tourist areas yes. by the sounds of it. All right, I'm going to make that my pick of the week and jump to Tony for your pick of the week, which is uh, also about a ban that may or may not be working. Yeah, yeah, 30-year anniversary this year of a ban at Northern Grampians Shire Council. Um a ban on cats. Um, oh. You can't have a cat if you reside in Halls Gap. Halls Gap, of course, um, you know, surrounded by the beautiful sanctuary, Gary Word, or some of us would remember it as the Grampians. Yeah. Um, cats have been banned in Halls Gap since 1993. Uh, $100 fine if you're caught um, keeping a cat. Um, seems it was a controversial um decision initially but you know over the fullness of time people have accepted it the mayor of northern grampians has been reported um kevin councillor kevin Irwin has come out um in the media recently um pretty profound statements saying well it must be working because um there aren't a lot of cats that are observed in Hall's Gap. So um, so we haven't got any studies as as to, um, you know, whether that ban has led to a reduction in, um, you know, the, the, the killing of native animals, for example. Mm. But, um, yeah, um, certainly a different approach than the 24-hour curfew that many councils have taken and um, mm. seems to have been accepted in, in Hall's Gap. I didn't realise that was in place, and it's been in place for for quite some time. So there you go. Good to good to hear that they they feel that is working. That comes as uh, more and more councils are looking at uh, some form of cat curfew. Uh, Geelong's the latest to call for feedback on its current arrangements, with some talk about perhaps moving to stronger curfews in the not too distant future. And Julie, your uh, pick of the week this week is uh, calling good old Facebook and social media into question again. I know, Chris, I just sigh every time I see these reports about Facebook and I just go, why do councillors do this stuff? I just don't understand. You know, it's so much in the public eye. Um, so what's the, happened, Julie? Tell this us. Is, this has happened in Western Australia. The State Administrative Tribunal has ordered the former City of Cockburn councillor, Leanne Smith, uh, OAM, to issue a public apology to the former Cockburn Council CEO, Stephen Kane. Uh, this is over a conduct issue dating back to 2019. Now, Stephen Kane's no longer the CEO there. He's moved on um, and she's a former um, councillor, I believe. There's this public apology. What's happened is that she's used Facebook 
to uh, sort of to make derogatory statements and offensive comments towards the CEO. Yeah. So, you know, it's obviously taken a long time for this to get to this point, so a lot of water under the bridge. But still, you know, um, good on the tribunal for following up with this and um, making a, making um, her make a public apology to the former CEO. Um, this is this is not respectful behaviour. This is the kind of stuff we need to stomp out. Um, and uh, councillors, please, please, you know, look at Facebook and use Facebook appropriately because it will bring you unstuck yeah. um, uh, like this has um, clearly shown. Uh, it's disappointing, isn't it? This particular Coburn councillor, Leanne Smith, is, is an OAM and has been a, a, a deputy mayor, uh, was on the council for more than 10 years. You would think uh, was experienced enough not to fall into that sort of trap, but it just goes to show you, Tony, that anyone in the heat of the moment can perhaps uh, go a little too far. Yeah, look, there's a whole series of episodes on social media we could run um um you know it, it it does seem to be the source of um lots of um code of conduct um concerns complaints and um as you say it's um the 24 7 medium that um that that you know counselors late at night can um um make posts respond to posts and um once they're up there they're, um, you know, the damage is is often done and um, and very problematic, very problematic. They're often late at night, aren't they? Or uh, after midnight, no no good posts or good emails seem to come with a 2am timestamp in my experience. <laughs> That'd be the rule of thumb, I think, you know, if, <laughs> yeah. or if you've got a, if you've got a glass of anything alcoholic in your hand, <laughs> don't log on. <laughs> Put it down and use both hands to type. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, we might call it quits there. That's been another bumper list of things to get through. And I've, I've left a few on the cutting room floor there for the, uh, for the sake of time. But uh, as always, uh, really enjoy getting your insights on the, the news of the week. Julie Reed, thank you very much as always. Have a great week, won't you? Ahead. Thank you, Chris. I'm heading down to Warnable next week. So I'm looking forward to meeting up with Warnable CEO and uh, training some staff down there uh, across the region. So uh, road trip to Warnable next week. Give our regards to the reasonably new CEO there at uh, Warrnambool. I hope he's going well. And uh, Tony, uh, thank you as always. And I hope you've got a busy week ahead of you as well. Oh, absolutely. Um, we race to the end of the financial year. A lot, yeah. of, a lot of fun. Thank you very much, Tony Rownick and Hunt and Hunt Lawyers for your support for the program. And Julie Reed uh, back again uh, next week, all being well, to do it all again here on uh, TGU. And we hope you'll be with us then as well. Don't forget to subscribe on YouTube or your podcast player to make sure you don't miss a thing from VLGA Connect. Until next time, bye for now. 